Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to first take this opportunity to wish all of you a very happy new year. And we are ready to start this new year out with a bang. As you all know, before we went on our break before Christmas, we finally received our open records request back from Smith County. The response contained several CDs. Contained in the CDs were some recorded interviews of Ed Eights, one of Leonard Mosley, and 5,000 pages of documents. Mike and I have spent the last two weeks scouring through these documents page by page by page. We still haven't gotten through all of them, but we have finally gotten them organized so we know what we're looking at. As we move on over the next several weeks, we're going to be breaking this open records request down piece by piece. And in segment three of today's episode, we're going to break down the interview transcript that Leonard Mosley gave to Detective Dale Huckel at the Smith County Sheriff's Department four days after Elnora's body was found. In segment two, we're going to go through what we did and did not get from the open records request. But before we get started on any of that, there was breaking news this morning that I want to address first. We got word today, Thursday, the 29th of December, that Judge Welch has denied Anand Syed's motion for bail. And that's what we're going to be covering in segment one. A few months back, we addressed on the show the fact that Anand's attorney, Justin Brown, had filed a motion for bail. In this motion, Justin Brown pointed out that even though Anand has spent the last 17 years in one of the most violent prisons in Maryland, he has had zero history of violence since he's been there. In fact, he's been a model prisoner. He also cited the fact that his conviction had been vacated. He stated in the motion that Anand had resources to produce money and many people who were willing to pledge real property for his release on bail. We've all been hoping ever since that Anand would be able to go home and await his new trial. Well, that hope was crushed today since Judge Welch ruled on the order. The ruling cited a number of reasons why he denied a non-bail. Now, since this is breaking today, I have not had the time to completely analyze all of this, but it's my understanding that the reasons bail was denied were pretty simple. One of the reasons is the nature of the vacation of the conviction. Even though we believe in Anand Syed's actual innocence, his conviction was not vacated due to actual innocence. 
Remember, his conviction was vacated due to ineffective assistance of counsel because Christina Gutierrez failed to cross-examine the cell phone expert. Now, even though that has big implications as to Adnan's innocence, technically speaking, Adnan's conviction was vacated based on a procedural error. The ruling also noted the method that the case was remanded back down to the lower court. It's also my understanding that Anand's notoriety due to the podcast serial, as well as, of course, Undisclosed and even this show, could both be a help and a hindrance to him. On one hand, it means that he has lots of resources if he did choose to flee, but on the other hand, it would be more difficult for him to flee because of his notoriety and recognizability. Also something to consider is the fact that the state is currently appealing the ruling. So therefore, if Anand was released on bail and the state won their appeal, they would have to take him right back into prison. So this is definitely a sad day. It definitely feels like a blow, but it was not unexpected. Colin Miller of the Undisclosed podcast went on record months ago saying that the most expected outcome would be that bail would be denied. Colin did tweet out yesterday that this was, in fact, what he was expecting, but it's still disappointing. And since legal orders like this are not my area of expertise, I would direct everyone to Colin Miller's blog. As of right now, there's not a blog post up, but I know that Colin will be writing a blog post on his Evidence Prof blog that I'm sure has already published by the time you're hearing this episode. So go check out Colin's blog for all of the details. So that's everything we have on Anand's bail motion right now. I'm sure by the time we record the Friday follow-up episode, we'll have a little more. Maybe we can touch on it again. And on that topic, speaking of the Friday follow-ups, we're going to move our recording schedule to Wednesday nights. So the nights we do the call-ins for the Friday follow-ups now will be Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So we will be recording the call-ins for this episode, the episode 248 follow-up, this Wednesday, January 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And now let's go ahead and move on to the contents of the open record request from Smith County. After nine months and nearly $1,300 and two Attorney General rulings, Smith County has finally produced my open records request. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's a lot in this open records request that we were waiting for, and there's also a lot of things that I believe should have been in the request that weren't there. One really important thing that we've been looking for for nearly a year now is the trial transcripts from Ed's first trial. We've had to make a lot of assumptions as to what was actually done and said at that first trial up until this point, but the trial transcripts were included in this open records request, and we have began already breaking down the testimony of individuals that testified at both trials. There were also a few individuals that testified at the first trial that did not testify at the second trial, one of which was an expert witness for the defense. We also have in this open records request a lot of new information about Francis Johnson's stay at the correctional facility in Clayton County, Georgia. At the second trial, Dobbs sprung on Ed's attorneys, Exhibit 137, that single document, the Resident Financial Obligation Report, that seemed to alibi Francis Johnson and prove that he was in Georgia at the time of the murder. Remember, at the second trial, Ed's attorneys had never seen this document before, and Dobbs stated that he had just received it. Well, this will be a subject for another episode, but what I did find in this report were several other copies of the same type of residence financial obligation report from several other different periods of times that have handwriting all over them where they were marked up and noted and calculations were made. One document that was found within this open records request that does answer the big question of motive for us 
was found in the documents. Remember that at the second trial, the possible motive that was presented for Edward Eight was robbery. And that was both on the defense and the prosecution side. They were trying to determine if Elnor was robbed, and they stated that they had no idea how much money she had. And since her purse was missing, maybe the killer got away with lots of money. Well, after pouring through these documents, I can now tell you that money was absolutely not a motive for killing Elnora Griffin. After reviewing Elnora's bank statements, we can see that at the time she was murdered, she had $62.16 in her bank account. And there was no activity on her account after the murder. But then we have the question of cash. Did she have lots of cash with her? Well, what the statement reveals that on the 19th of July, three days before her murder, she withdrew $20 from an ATM machine. And then on the morning that she was murdered, she withdrew $10 from an ATM machine. We also have two more months of bank statements. And by analyzing these bank statements, we can see a pattern. Elnora Griffin was living paycheck to paycheck. Like I said, on the day she was murdered, she only had $62 in her bank account. And her next payday was the next day, the 23rd. And her paychecks that she received every two weeks ranged between $540 and $650. And when we look at her ATM withdrawals, again, three days before she was murdered, she withdrew $20. And then the day of the murder, she withdrew $10 from an ATM machine. The withdrawal of the $10 would indicate that she had already spent the $20. Also, we would assume that if she's withdrawing money from an ATM machine, it's for a purpose. She needed that cash right then, that day. So the assumption that I'm making, and it is an assumption, is that she withdrew the $20 on the 19th. She had spent it. She needed $10 for something else on the 22nd, the day she was murdered. So she withdrew 10 more dollars. The ATM machine where she withdrew the money was located right next to her work. So we can assume it was during the workday. And by assuming that she wasn't just withdrawing $10 just to keep in her purse, and that she probably had a purpose for it, I think that it's very likely that she withdrew that $10 and then spent the $10. Or at least some of the $10. So based on these bank records, we can see that no one wrote a check from her account after the murder. No one used her debit card after the murder. And at most, she had $10 or less in her wallet at the time of the murder. Now, this may not seem like a huge detail, but it actually is quite significant. Understanding victimology and the motive behind the murder can help us to narrow down a suspect field. We know now that there was no forced entry into her house. It appears that she was not raped and nothing was stolen from her house. The only thing missing was her wallet and her keys, and there was little to no money in her wallet. Eliminating all of those possible motives leads us with the most likely motive for killing Elnora being a personal grudge. Also found in these documents were the phone records of Elnora's daughter-in-law, Gloria. Now, if you remember way back in Leonard Mosley's testimony, it was suggested that he had told Tim Lowndes, the private investigator, that Elnora's daughter-in-law had called her on the night of the murder at 11 o'clock and that she actually spoke with her. Well, after reviewing these documents, we know that not to be true. Elnora's daughter-in-law, Gloria, did in fact call Elnora on the night she was murdered, but that call came in about 7 o'clock at night and lasted 13 minutes. Now, this information doesn't help the defense, but it does answer the question for us as to whether or not that call actually occurred. It did occur, but it occurred hours before the murder. Now, there was a lot more in this records request that we've been looking for. 
For example, we now have a recorded interview with Leonard Mosley with the defense investigator Tim Lowndes. We have the recorded interview and the transcripts of the recording. That's good. The problem is that Leonard Mosley interviewed with the defense investigator three times. In 1994, Mosley had recorded interviews with Tim Lowndes in March, April, and May. We have the recording and the transcript from the April interview. We don't, however, have the recordings or the transcripts from the March or the May interviews. These are things that we know for a fact that the prosecution had in their possession at the time of the trial because they were referencing them in the transcripts. These missing documents and tapes, along with everything else that I'm about to list for you, have been addressed with Smith County, and they have told us that they gave us everything that they had. I spoke with Thomas from the Smith County DA's office last week, and I told him that I know they had these tapes because they referenced them at trial, and he simply told me, we don't have them, I don't know what to tell you. They're not here. He claims that they gave us everything that they had. And the initial point of that conversation was me calling him, asking him for the recorded interview of Monica Bush. Included in this records request was the transcript from her interview, but not included was the actual tape. Now, as I'm sure you all know, you have to have the tape in order to make the transcript. The same is true of Kubia Jackson's interview, Marsha Bush's interview, Kenny Snow's interview with the ISIS investigators, and a man named Keith Warren who was interviewed by ISIS as well. We have transcripts of all of those, but no tapes. One very important thing that was also missing from this records request was any police notes. I had requested for copies of all police notes and supplemental reports. That means everything that any officer wrote down on a piece of paper and put into that file. And in this request, I have zero, exactly zero, written notes from the police officers. I do have police reports for Roy Tomlin, who was the first officer on the scene, Shirley Mallard Long, she's the one that took all the written statements from everyone on the scene the night the body was found, Deputy Steve Cheney, who was on the scene that night and was actually in the room with Dale Huckel when they interviewed Ed on the night the body was found. I have the report from Randy Hurst, who was a receptionist at the police department that wrote a short report about how Ed was acting when he was waiting to be interviewed. I have a report from Ralph East. He was the dive team commander when they went out and searched the pond. I even have reports from Dennis Murphy of the FBI that he made during his discussions with Kenny Snow. And most importantly, I do now finally have Jason Waller's written report. This report was key and we'll be covering it in detail in a couple of weeks. He was the one that actually investigated the crime scene that night, so we have every single thing that he wrote down during that investigation. What we don't have is any police reports made by Melody McKay. You'll remember, she was the second detective, the one specializing in sex crimes, that helped to investigate the crime scene with Jason Waller the night Elnora's body was found. I have no reports from her. I also don't have any reports from Detective Bobby Gorman. Bobby Gorman was in the room along with Steve Cheney and Dale Huckel when Ed was interviewed, and his name comes up throughout this investigation and many reports that he was involved in the investigation of this case, but I have no reports created by him. I had specifically requested any correspondence that the Smith County DA's office or the police department had with Elnora's family. While reading other reports and other transcripts, I can see that they did indeed speak with her family, but I have no documentation of any statements or anything that was said by Elnora's family. 
I had also requested any information from the Smith County Sheriff's Department regarding their contact with anyone from Tyler Pipe confirming Leonard Mosley's alibi. And nothing. There's nothing in here about any contact with Bobby O'Neill, the man Leonard claimed to give a ride home to. There is nothing in this report whatsoever about any contact with Angela Walker. Now, it appears from other documents that Angela never came in and gave an official statement. However, she was questioned, sounds like, on the phone by Dale Huckel. Either no report was made, nothing was written down, or they didn't turn it over. They did, in fact, turn over several new crime scene photos. Most of them are just closer-up photos of things we've already seen before, including a photo of the floor after Elnora's body was moved. And this photo answered another question, the question of the pillow that Elnora was laying on when her body was found. I've been wondering for months if that pillow was placed under her after the fact, or if she was clutching it or fell onto it when her throat was slit. And as it turns out, the pillow was indeed under her when she died. The bloodstains on the floor make a perfect outline around the outside of the pillow. So that means the pillow was not tucked under her after she was dead. But what we don't have is any photos of the outside of the trailer. Ed had told me that he had seen the prosecution's photos, several photos in fact, of the front and back porch, photos of footprints in the dirt, and photos of the car at night the night it was investigated. None of those photos were included in this request. Now there's a lot more for us still to go through, but we have at this point scanned the entire document several times to make sure the things that we were looking for were not included. At this point, we began researching specific documents and have started the process of cross-referencing them with all of the other documents, the first trial transcript, and the second trial transcript. So as we move along to the next several weeks, there's going to be a lot more questions answered, and we've already found some startling new revelations. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break for the ad, and then we're going to move on to the analysis of Leonard Mosley's first recorded interview with Detective Dale Huckel. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On the night Elnora's body was found, on Friday, July 23rd, Leonard Mosley claims that he was awakened by his brother Michael around 1 o'clock in the morning. He got his stuff and he went down to the crime scene. While at the crime scene, he spoke with Detective Dale Huckel, who asked Leonard to come back into the station a few days later to give a recorded interview. Leonard did so four days later on Tuesday, July 27th at about 9.30 in the morning. 
And what we're going to do now is break down this interview and see if there are any clues here that might help us to figure out who killed Elnora Griffin. The first thing that I noticed when reviewing this interview, and this interview will be up on the website, truthandjusticepod.com, go to case documents and click the Ed Aids case. It'll be all the way at the bottom under episode 248. But the first thing that I noticed is that it seems that already at this point, on this Tuesday, that Dale Huckel already had his mind made up about who killed Elnora. In the very first paragraph, he tells Leonard, I'd like to start out by number one telling you that I have a suspect in mind. We are working on that angle of it. Also keep in mind for context, Ed Eights' second interview occurred about 40 minutes after this interview. So they spoke with Leonard, he left, and then Ed came in and they did Ed's second interview. A lot of what's contained in this interview is stuff that we already knew. Mosley says that he worked all day Thursday and he got off at 11 o'clock. Now keep in mind, if you go on the website and read this interview, that towards the beginning, Leonard gets a little bit confused about the days. He's mixing up Thursday and Friday, so make sure you continue reading so you know which day he's actually talking about. But on page two of this document, at the top of the page, Leonard is talking about actually Friday night, the night Elnora's body was found. He says that he got off work at 11, he took a shower, and they took a friend home, Bobby O'Neill. He said Bobby stays at Tyler Square Apartments in Tyler. He says that he talked to Bobby over there for 20 or 30 minutes, and then he went home. He says that he arrived home that Friday night about 12.30 or 12.45. This is all consistent with his testimony at the second trial. But at the bottom of the fifth paragraph of the second page, Leonard said something that caught my attention. Now this could be nothing, but it definitely raised my spidey senses. Let me read you exactly what Leonard said. He said, I stayed over there and talked probably 20 or 30 minutes. Then I came home. When I got home, I got in bed. It was about 12.30, 12.45. My brother pulled in the yard blowing his horn. I had dozed off. He was blowing the horn, so I got up. Well, I went out on the porch, and that's when he told me. Then I just went back in and got dressed and went back up there. The word back in that sentence is what caught my attention. He says that he went back up there. Now, in all of his statements, he says that he hadn't been to Elnora's house in at least a week. Sometimes he says two weeks. So why is he saying that he went back up there? I thought maybe it was possible that he went back with his brother. But in other documents and other statements, we find that his brother did not go back to the crime scene. His brother went home. Leonard went to the crime scene alone. Now again, of course, we have the weirdness of his brother being there to begin with because no one that was on the crime scene that night that I've talked to remembers Leonard's brother ever stopping by. But assuming that he did, and he left, and Leonard went to the crime scene by himself, it got me wondering why he said he went back up there if he hadn't been there in weeks. Now, I'm not trying to pretend this is some kind of smoking gun or anything. It could just be a vernacular thing. He could just mean that he went back to the place where his brother had just been. But that's a line that most definitely got me to get my highlighter out. Leonard goes on to say that on Thursday night, the night Elnora was killed, that he just went straight home and that he got home about 12. Towards the bottom of this page, there's something interesting that Huckel is asking about but there are two spots where it says inaudible, and we don't know exactly what was said. Huckel had asked Leonard if he was living alone. He told him no, that he had a friend living there. And Huckel says, just you two live in the home? Is this Andrea or Angela Walker? Is this the same lady that, and then inaudible. People out there Friday night were talking about maybe that inaudible. So of course it says inaudible at two very inopportune moments. 
But Hugel's asking about something some people out on the crime scene were saying. Mosley responds, my ex-wife. That's not my ex-wife. Now we get a little bit of clarification about this later in the interview, but we still have some unanswered questions. On page 15 of the interview, Hugel's talking to Mosley about the fact that Elnora's children were a little bit concerned about him as a suspect. This is Mosley's response to one of Hugel's questions on page 15. Well, yeah, yeah, they was acting kind of strange, you know. Like, I think it was you, or somebody that was talking to them. And like, because someone said, well, she'd been having problem out of her boyfriend's ex-wife and stuff. You know, and there her boyfriend is right there. You know, like, you know, like I might have done something or something. You understand what I'm saying? So given that, I'm assuming what Hugo was asking about here in page two was about problems that Elnora's family had told him that Elnora was having with Leonard's ex-wife. Now, as far as I can tell, this ex-wife is not the same ex-wife that we talked about a couple of episodes ago who Leonard had the domestic dispute with where he allegedly had pulled a gun on her. That was Joanne. He didn't marry Joanne until 1995. This was 1993, so there must be another ex-wife prior to this, unless he married Joanne twice, which I don't know if that happened or not at this point. Now, on page three, we have another question that's answered that creates more questions. Talking about Angela, Huckel asks, okay, she has a child by you? Mosley says, yeah. Huckel says, and does that child live with y'all? Mosley says, no. Something came up and she needed some help, so I was going to try and help out, you know. It was irritating reading this part of the transcript because Huckel doesn't follow up at all. Leonard and Angela are the two parents of this child. He says Angela had some problems, so she moved in with him, the house where Leonard lived alone, she moves it with him, he says that she sleeps in the same bed as him, and yet their child does not live there with them. But he never asks why the child isn't living there with them, or where the child was staying. So like I said, we have the answer to one question, but it raises a few more questions. But regarding Leonard's relationship to Angela, and his relationship with Elnora, what he's telling Huckel is very similar to what he told me earlier this year. He says that him and Elnora were talking about getting married, and everything was good with their relationship, other than they had some friction about the fact that Angela was living with him. Leonard states in this interview that he had spoken with Elnora on the phone the week before the murder to talk about what he calls the situation, which, by the way, throughout this interview, he refers to his relationship with Angela as the situation. He said that on a Friday morning before Elnora went to work that she had called him and he told her that he was going to take care of the situation. Elnora's phone records confirm that this call did actually happen. We see on Elnora's phone records that on Friday, July 16th, which is the Friday before the murder, that she called Leonard at 7.23 a.m. and they spoke for 23 minutes. Now, according to Leonard in this interview, the context of that conversation was him telling Elnora that he was going to take care of the situation because it was causing friction in their relationship. And as he tells Huckel throughout this interview, Everything was all good with him and Elnora. But Elnora's family have a different story. Now, like I said, I have no notes from Huckel actually talking to anyone from her family, but he references the conversations in this interview. Huckel tells Mosley throughout this interview that Elnora's family was telling him that Elnora had called off the relationship with Leonard, that they had broke up because he was cheating on her. Leonard continues to deny this and say their relationship was okay, but Huckel makes several references to that effect. And also, don't forget that Kubia Jackson said the same thing in the second trial, that Elnora had broken up with him because he was cheating on her with Angela. So while we don't know who's telling the truth here, 
I think that it's at least safe to say that Elnora was telling people that she had broken up with Leonard because of his affair with Angela. Now, regarding the affair, in this interview, Leonard does admit to sleeping in the same bed with Angela, but he doesn't say that he actually slept with her. By slept with her, I mean have sex with her. Now, at trial, he does admit that they were indeed intimate together. So we don't know if Elnora did, in fact, break off the relationship, but we do know that she told everyone that she had. Leonard is at least saying that he believed the relationship was okay, that after that phone conversation on Friday the 16th, he had promised her he was going to fix things and take care of his situation, and that they were all good. Now, this may not sound like much, but it actually tells us a lot. If Leonard is telling the truth, it actually makes sense with some of the evidence that we have. He said that he hadn't seen Elnora since the 11th of July, two Sundays before the murder, which means he did not go to her house on the Thursday before, like he normally did, which would seem to indicate that they were having problems, possibly that Elnora did break up with him, but then they had that phone conversation the next day on that Friday, which, by the way, is another indication that he wasn't there that Thursday night, because he said when he went Thursday nights he spent the night, but she called him at home at 7.23 in the morning. Then we have the fact that the night Elnora was killed, that she was expecting Leonard to come by. She was, I believe, waiting for him in nothing but panties and a robe and had cooked a meal for him. But she was still telling her friends and her family, including Gloria, her daughter-in-law, who she had spoke to just hours before her death, that her and Leonard were broke up. This also could be an indication of why she would have told Kubia that she was sitting there talking to Edward. If she had told her friends that Leonard was cheating on her and that's why they broke up, she may not have wanted her friends to know that she was taking him back. Now, regarding Angela, Leonard says here on page 3 of the transcript that Angela kept calling and harassing Elnora. He says in this paragraph, She called her probably about probably four times. She talks to her, not really talked to her. You know, she said something probably twice on the phone. So, for me reading that, it sounds to me like Angela was calling and hanging up on Elnora. Mosley goes on and says, You know, then she called a couple of times. She wouldn't say nothing. She would just hang up. I talked to her about that, you know, and I told her, you know, I'm trying to help you, you know. You act like you're trying to mess up my relationship. So, you know, you can't do that, you know, so inaudible. So, based on what Leonard is saying here and what he said at trial... Angela did know about Elnora, and she was pissed about it, and she was calling and harassing Elnora. Also, couple that with the fact that Leonard told Elnora that Friday that he was going to take care of the situation. It makes me wonder if he didn't have a conversation with Angela in the days leading up to or the day of the murder and told her that she had to leave, that he had to fix the situation. And as we move on to page four of the transcript, there's another strange thing here. Mosley's explaining to Huckel how Angela got Elnora's phone number. He says that Angela has never seen Elnora, doesn't know where she lives, and doesn't know what she looks like. But this is what Mosley says on the top of page 4. No, no, she doesn't even, she, she doesn't never seen her, she doesn't even know how she looks, or then she didn't even know where she lived. The way she got her number, I called there one day, we was going to a movie or something, and I called her, so just pushed redial, and it was her number, that's when it happened. So Leonard's claiming that Angela got Elnora's phone number by pressing redial. But maybe some of you can answer this in the follow-up, but my remembrance of redial back in the early 90s was you would hit redial, and it would just recall the number. 
there was no way of knowing what number it actually dialed. At least the phones I had didn't have any kind of digital readout that would tell you which number it was dialing. You would just hear the beeps and the phone would ring. Of course, Hugo doesn't follow up on this at all, and he moves back to Leonard getting home that Thursday night. Leonard said that Angela was home and that she could verify that he got in at 12.10 that night. But remember that what Angela Walker testified to was that he didn't get home until 12.45. And unfortunately, we don't have any record of Huckel talking to Angela to figure out what she actually said to him at the time of the murder. And again here, Huckel goes back to reassuring Leonard that he doesn't think that he's a suspect. He says, okay, I'm asking everybody where they were. If anybody, anybody else saw them there and things like this, you know. But I've got, I've got one particular person who told me where he was, what he was doing, and his story ain't checking out. And then Hugo goes on, and this is just odd. As, as an interviewer or interrogator, there are certainly instances where you want to set the person's mind at ease using the read techniques. But for the most part, you want to ask open-ended questions and let the person talk that you're interviewing. But Hugo goes on for a long time. He says, well, I wouldn't, I don't think that you did it. I'll tell you that right up front. I don't think that you did it. I really don't. Not at this point especially, because this other boy, this other thing is just, I mean, it's just like slapping us in the face right now at this point. Now this paragraph goes on and on and on, but it's pretty obvious at this point that Huckel most definitely had blinders on. Like we've assumed for months, as soon as Kubia said that Elnora said she was talking to Edward, he denied being there, and then he lied about how he got to Monica's, Hugel had his mind made up, and that's obvious, and he actually even states it here. He never, ever really considered Leonard Mosley a suspect. And the case against Ed Aids, in his own words, was slapping him in the face. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. But at this point in the interview, Detective Bobby Gorman steps in. He actually starts asking some decent follow-up questions. Here at the top of page 7, he's questioning the validity of Leonard's story, that their relationship was just fine and they were getting married. Gorman says, so you mean to say that y'all was talking about getting married and you haven't seen her in a week or two? Leonard goes on to say, couple weeks, yeah, because, because of the situation. Then Gorman starts hinting around about the meal that was on the stove, but Leonard doesn't bite. Gorman asks, did she used to do something normally every time you'd come there or something? I mean, did she used to do something? Mosley says, well, when I'd go in, she would hug me. She'd hug me and kiss me. And then Gorman asks, how did she dress for bed? Mosley says, well, sometimes she, she likes sexy stuff. So sometimes she would have, like, little two-piece silk something on, or sometimes she would just have panties, you know, a little sleeping gown or teddy or something. This is actually consistent with the fact that she was expecting Leonard to come over that night, because she was indeed found that she had been wearing nothing but panties and a gown. 
And this is also significant because she knew that Leonard wouldn't get to her house until after midnight. So even if she had been sitting talking to Ed that night at 10 o'clock, two hours before that, she surely wouldn't have been sitting around just wearing underwear and a gown. I would assume that she would get into that shortly before he arrived, and certainly not when she had other company over. Leonard goes on in the interview to describe Elnora and say that he thought that it would be really strange and she would never just sit there dressed like that or even have a man in her house alone. By the way he describes Elnora, it would seem preposterous that she would be sitting talking to the neighbor boy wearing nothing but panties and a robe, or even that she would be sitting late at night with just the neighbor boy in her house. Also understand that at this point, no one knows that the police think that Ed was the culprit. Leonard doesn't know that he's explaining to Detective Gorman that the idea of Ed being there that night was simply out of the question. But then again, as far as what Leonard's saying here, I don't think he had a really good grasp on exactly who Elnora was or what she was doing. And I don't mean that in an insulting way at all, but he told Detective Gorman that when he had sex with Elnora, that she had told him that it's the first time she'd had sex in 12 years. That when she was in Dallas, she was taking care of her granddaughter with leukemia and hadn't had time to date. He said that when they first had sex, that she kept saying she can't believe she did that, she never does that, and that it had been 12 years since she'd had sex. He talked about a relationship that she had with another man, and it almost sounds like he's describing Lionel Williams, but he says there was no sex in that relationship. So if Leonard's telling the truth here, he thinks that Elnora hasn't had sex in 12 years, he doesn't believe, as he said at trial, that she was dating Francis Johnson, and doesn't believe that she'd had sex with anyone else, including Lionel Williams. Huckel steps back in here and starts asking some pretty personal questions about their sex life. He asks Leonard what kind of sex they had. He asks if they've done anal intercourse, which Leonard says no. He actually says no, it was just straight. It was just straight. Huckel asks him if he's ever had anal intercourse. And Leonard says no, he could only see someone doing that like two men because they don't have any other choice. Leonard goes on to say that Elnora was a very religious woman. Well, actually, he doesn't say it. Huckel finishes his sentence for him. Leonard says she, she was a, and then Huckel jumps in and says she was a very religious person. Then Leonard goes on to say that that's the reason they were talking about getting married. He said she, she was a straight, she was a straight woman, you know. This is why she said, you know, well, we going to have to get married because I don't, she said, I don't even know why we're doing it. She said, I don't do this, you know. I was understanding, you know inaudible, right, you know, you don't get married because it's not right, you know, and so, you know, stuff like that, you know it, and then it cuts off. As the conversation goes on, Leonard says that he tried to call Elnora on Friday night, the night the body was found. Now, this Friday, as you know, is all over the place. We've heard him say that he went in early that morning. We've heard him say that he worked regular hours. Remember when he talked to me, he said that he was on his way home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and drove by her house and couldn't see her car because it was pushed so far back. But in this interview, he says he tried to call her at 10 minutes until 10 p.m. that Friday night before he got off work and then tried calling again after 10 o'clock. He says he got no answer and no answering machine. Then Hugo moves on to asking Leonard about his brother Michael, and we get some new information here too. Apparently, his brother Michael and Elnora were close. Leonard says that Michael was going through a divorce and that he had been spending time with Elnora. He never really says, but I assume his friends. And he even says that Michael and Elnora rode to Dallas together so Elnora could introduce Michael to her family. 
course, Hugel doesn't ask a lot of follow-up questions to figure out what exactly the nature of that relationship was, but up until now, I had no idea that Elnora had any kind of relationship with Leonard's family, and certainly not that she was so close to his brother that he went to Dallas with her to meet her family, especially because Leonard says that he's never been to Dallas to meet her family. He's only met them a couple of times at Elnora's house, and not all of them, just some of them. Leonard goes on to say that Michael has known Elnora for several months, but he's only been over to her house in the last couple of weeks. Coincidentally enough, those were the last couple of weeks where Elnora at least had told her family and her friends that she had called it off with Leonard. As the interview moves on, Leonard confirms that Angela had to be to work at 7 in the morning on Friday, just like she testified to. He says, like he did in the second trial, that they did sleep in the same bed together that night, but denies having sex with her that night. And then Leonard goes on to describe an incident that Angela had at his house. Now remember, when I talked to Angela, she told me that the night before the murder, on Wednesday night, that Margie Jackson was outside of the house and that she had called the police. But when I checked for police records, there was no record of an incident at that address on that date. Well, I think Leonard here gives us the reason why. Because one, it wasn't Margie, and two, it didn't happen that Wednesday night, and three, she didn't call the police. Mosley says, and I'll tell you another thing. Okay, like when I got home that Thursday, well, no, that Friday, uh, okay, she woke up and I left, and I was, that's when I was up there. He's talking about here when he went to the crime scene. When I got back home, all the lights were on, and she was up crying, and I asked her what was wrong with her, and she said that she had seen someone, you know, outside the house that Friday. Hugel says, Friday? Mosley says, yeah. She had called my brother, not the police, she called Leonard's brother. Says she had called my brother. He came over there, inaudible. She said, he said she was up with all the lights on and she wasn't asleep. One reason she said, you know, she was scared. Because one bedroom is like, on one end of the house, the other one is on the other end, you know, it, inaudible. And again, Huckel asked no follow-up questions. He just goes right into, again, asking Leonard if Angela was awake when he got into bed on Thursday night. And Leonard says no, she usually wakes up when he comes home into the house. Gorman pops in here and asks Leonard if he's willing to take a polygraph test, and Leonard says that he will. He was never actually asked to take that test and never took one, but he says here that he would. Now I'm going to read you an exchange that went back and forth between Gorman, Mosley, and Huckel regarding semen. After Gorman had asked about the polygraph test, he moves on to say, the main thing is just clear up, you know, what you just told us, that you went straight home that night and stuff like that. Mosley then jumps in and says, I, I, I was going to ask you about the, you know, did they do a semen test on her? Huckel then jumps in. Well, they, there's a lot of things that we're doing that we're not telling everybody until I got ready to make an arrest. Mosley, okay, well, Huckel interrupts him. There's a lot, there's a reason for that, Leonard. When talking with someone that someone eventually decides it starts bothering their conscience, they want to come in and tell me about it. Even though they're wanting to tell me about it, I want to make sure that that person did do it. There are people out there, there are people that will say they did something when they didn't do it for the attention, and especially in cases like this. Believe it or not, there's weird sicko people who would take credit for doing this, but didn't do it. So we have to keep certain things to ourselves that only the person that did it would know, okay? And that person's going to have to tell me those things. Mosley, oh, okay. So the context here is just a little odd. 
The topic of the conversation was what time he got home and if Angela can verify his alibi. Gorman asked if he would take a polygraph test and lets him know that he just wants to do that just to clear up and make sure he's telling the truth about it. And Mosley jumps into asking them if they've done a semen test, even though to this point nothing's been said about her being raped or semen being on the scene at all. That then prompts Gorman to ask when the last time they had sex was. Mosley says about two weeks ago. Huckel says, there wouldn't be any of your semen in her, right? Mosley says, shouldn't, I mean, because, Huckel interrupts, that long ago, that long ago, no. Then Mosley says, she douche regularly, but you know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make me any, it doesn't make me any difference. All I want to do is find out who did it, you know. I wish I could find out who did it, personally myself, you know. And this is the part in the transcript that I'd read earlier, where Mosley seems to be concerned about the fact that Elnora's family thinks that maybe he did it. Huckel's explaining why they're doing polygraphs for everyone, and Mosley says, Yeah, but I noticed that night, you know, her, I just thought that she had been hurt, you know, but they was, her kids were acting kind of, kind of strange to me. Now, I remember at the beginning of the interview, Huckel made very clear to Leonard that he was not a suspect and that he didn't believe he did it. But as you can see throughout the transcript, Gorman isn't quite so sure. Gorman tells Leonard, and so we got to go in open mind and everybody's a suspect. I'll be truthful to you. You, kids, everybody's a suspect. Until we get something concrete to rule everybody out. The Mosley says, okay, okay, let me ask you this. Okay, now did you tell us that she was raped, right? Okay, that she had, not rape, but she had intercourse. Huckel says, it appears that way. Mosley, that she had intercourse. Huckel says, no, I didn't say she did. I said, it appears that way. Mosley, she had, had, Huckel interrupts, may have. Mosley says, y'all still don't know that? And then Gorman comes in. We won't know until we get our report back. And then Mosley says, so if she didn't, if she didn't have intercourse, okay, if she didn't anybody rape her, then that's going to kind of like throw the case way off, right? Huckel says, not necessarily, no. Mosley says, I mean, that would be the strongest evidence, wouldn't it? Huckel says, well, there's several different types of motives. Gorman jumps in and says, we got more evidence than, and Mosley interrupts him and says, well, yeah, I figured, you know, but I don't understand. It should have been, I mean, did they, did y'all dust the body? I mean, was there any fingerprints on the body? And then Gorman says, like I said, we're not releasing any of that information. Then moving on in an attempt to set Mosley's mind at ease, and this is on page 17 if you're following along on the transcript, Huckel reveals that no one saw Elnora's body. He's saying that her family wanted to go in and see her, and they wouldn't let them. So the only person that saw the body was Johnny Pryor who said she had stepped in for a brief second, could see Elnora laying there on the floor, left and called 911. The family wasn't allowed into the house until after the body was removed. So no one at all saw that crime scene before everything was moved out. No one had a clear view with the lights on of Elnora laying on the floor. Johnny Pryor is the only one that saw anything, other than Ed and Kelvin, who had stepped in and just saw her foot and her leg. Then finally, on page 17, Huckel is ending the interview, and before they cut it off, Mosley asks, are you all finished with the house? Huckel says, oh yes, the family's already taken their property and stuff from the house. Mosley says, oh really? So they already cleaned it up, huh? I wish I could have went in there before they... And then Huckel comes in and ends the interview. This interview is the very first record we have of Leonard Mosley's involvement in this investigation. This is the statement we have that is closest in time to the events the night of the murder. 
Leonard got home from the crime scene Saturday morning, and this was Tuesday morning when he came in and gave this statement. Now, as we move forward in the investigation, we're going to track how Leonard's story stayed the same and where it changed throughout other interviews and two trials and his interview with me earlier this year. And after my interview with Leonard, the biggest question that we've all had burning in our minds is whether or not Leonard actually knew how Elnora was killed. Did he really have no idea what actually happened on that crime scene that night, or was he intentionally lying and pretending not to know Elnora's cause of death in order to mislead me? But just go and just, she just wants to kill somebody's girl, man, beat him, you know, I mean, for no reason, for what reason? Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Intro music today was created by Score Squad and called To The Top. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And thank you for all of your engagement and support as we've been moving forward with this case. And I hope you're all having a wonderful New Year's Day. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Don't forget that we will be recording phone calls for the Friday follow-up this Wednesday evening, January 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been... Truth and Justice.